Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. What an epic video, right? Like, that's so good. Uh, and it's because this is going to be and is and always has been an epic book. Uh, Exodus is a very powerful series, but uh, first of all, this is my, again, as Rich said, my first week uh, back in the pulpit after getting a brand new shoulder a few weeks ago, um, and so the operation was a success. Thank, yeah, I think you can pray for my shoulder, right? Right, and praise God for my shoulder. Um, and so it was a success. Uh, it continues to heal well. So thank you again for your prayers. Um, my family and I feel very loved and supported. Um, everything's going well. Uh, and yeah, so thank you again for leadership teams and all that have stepped up over the past few weeks. It's been a great time to heal and uh, just, yeah, even prepare uh, for this series. Um, and so this morning, we're beginning our series in the book of Exodus, which I've been looking to, forward to for a while now. Um, and so it's the story of how God rescues his people, Israel, and how he sets them apart. And so it's literally the story of how Israel became a nation and how they were given an identity and what that identity is about, what it's always been about. And so with the events that's, been, that's happening in our world right now and, and in modern Israel, even as we speak, there are a lot of questions about who modern Israel is and what their relationship is to the church. A lot of questions floating around like, like this right now. Um, like, for example, do the tensions that continue to escalate have to do with the Bible prophecies about end times? Anybody have these types of questions on your mind recently? I think there are people that don't even have, they've never really thought about eternal things, and now they're kind of going like, this sounds familiar, what's happening? And so if it does have any significance, how? So before we really dive into this series in Exodus, I want to take a, a, a time briefly here to clarify a few things. First of all, Hamas, wicked damnable, an organization that needs to be dealt with, period, okay? Very clear. It's shocking to me that anyone would ever think that that's even up for debate. Now, what about modern Israel? Let's not forget, first of all, we are under the new covenant and that salvation comes to everyone by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, So there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus himself made this very clear even to the Jews that he was speaking to when he said this. And so this applies both to Jew and to Gentile, which means non-Jews. That's what the word Gentile means, non-Jewish people. And so there's no other avenue for salvation. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on heritage. It's not based on works. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ Christ alone. Let's not get this twisted in the midst of what can possibly be very confusing circumstances where people are trying to take sides and things of that nature. So, and, and, and as I said, in this particular situation, there are sides to be taken. But when we talk about some, the eternal significance, and we especially talk about salvation, you need to understand that salvation is available in Christ to Jew, to Gentile, the American, Palestinian, European, Asian, African, all nations, all ethnicities, but it comes only through Jesus Christ. We cannot ever forget that. So then, what about ethnic Israel? In the book of Romans, specifically chapter 11, the apostle Paul, who is a self-proclaimed Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, he uses the metaphor of an olive tree to depict God's people who are rooted in the covenant love of God by faith. One tree. And in this imagery, he points out that a partial hardening has come over Israel. So this is back in the first century, and he says a partial hardening has come over Israel and, and that only a remnant remain, meaning like Paul himself, who was at one time uh, very hard towards Jesus Christ, much of Israel has illogically become hardened to the Lord and belief in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so as a result, he says, they have been cut off 
from that tree. Like branches, he says, that are pruned from that tree. Jesus even used this kind of language himself when talking about the fact that he himself is the vine and that they are the branches. And he says, if you don't abide in me, you will be cut off. Remember, he was speaking to Jews in that specific context. It applies, obviously. I hope you see the spiritual applications to us even today in all who do not abide in Christ. But it had significance at the time as well. And so he speaks to uh, natural, he speaks of natural branches. He speaks of Jews who have received Christ by faith as Lord and Savior. These, these were natural branches that were a part of the covenantal tree. And then he also talks about the unnatural branches. And he says these are Gentiles who have received Christ as Lord and Savior by faith and are grafted into this covenant family by faith in Christ. Okay? No less a part of the covenantal tree. This is, if you are not a Jew and you are a Christian, you. Right? If you are a Jew and you are a Christian, you are a part of the tree and you're just a natural branch. This is adoption. You're no less a part of the family in Christ's eyes, in God's eyes. And so this is one tree and one root. This is the church Jew and Gentile, all tapped into the source root in Christ. So then, ethnic Israel, who has rejected Christ as Lord and Savior, have been cut off. This would be modern ethnic Israel who does not consider Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Now, be careful. Be careful here. Because it doesn't mean that they are insignificant to God or even Bible prophecy, especially as it relates to Christ's return. And here's what I mean by that. Both the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself passionately lament in prayer over unbelieving Israel. We see a deep passion for these people. Jesus even weeps over Jerusalem. Listen to his love and longing for them in Luke verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then again, just a week before, later on in Christ's ministry, just a week before he would be crucified by the Romans and the Jews, Luke 19 verse 41 says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Speaking of Jerusalem, saying, so Jesus is weeping over it. He's on the Mount of Olives at this point. He's, he's looking at Jerusalem. He's, he's about to make his triumphal entry into it and then be crucified. And he looks at it and he's weeping. God is weeping. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Listen, he's not angry, he's brokenhearted. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And we, we know that in 70 AD that actually happened. Okay? Now, back to Romans 11. Paul also speaks from his own hope that many of those branches that were cut off would be grafted back in. Okay, even as the Gentiles were grafted in, in Christ, same way. Paul even warns the Romans against any anti-Semitism. He says, don't be conceited towards Israel. Even though at this time, Israel was even persecuting the early church. And he tells them, don't get conceited. 
Instead, we're called to pray for them and to tap into God's heart for them, to rejoin the covenant family tree of faith that we're now a part of in Christ. All by faith in Christ. Jew, Gentile, Palestinian, American, however you want to put it. Instead, he says pray for them. There's even a case to be made here from the scriptures about a massive end times revival when unbelieving ethnic Israel will repent and receive salvation through faith in Christ. Like, how great would that be? Like, we should pray for that, amen? And so, with all of that said, are the events in modern Israel today spiritually significant? Yeah. Yes, I think so. Does ethnic Israel have an important role to play in redemptive history still? Yes, I think so. Could Jesus return to the earth at any moment? And depending on how long the sermon is, even before I'm done. Yes, I think so. But, But don't get confused, okay? Salvation does not come through ethnicity. Even under the old covenant, God called for faith. He called for a circumcision of their hearts, not merely their flesh or their works. And so modern Israel does not get a blank pass on every decision they make either. Guys, even biblical Israel made lots of bad, even disobedient decisions. So no, we should not just blindly back everything modern Israel does, but make no mistake, this war against Hamas, guys, I stand with Israel. And I will always pray for the peace of Israel, because Psalm 122 tells us to. Okay, And so when you pray for the Jews, and when you pray for the Palestinians, you should pray for, we should pray for repentance from a broken heart. So when we pray for the Christian Jews and for the Christian Palestinians, which there are many, and and, and they are God's covenant people. If they're in Christ, hear that. Pray for boldness to witness and to point to Jesus. Because Christ is the source of living water. He's the root of all eternal life and covenant love. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ and in Christ alone. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Shalom. And so as we walk through this series in Exodus, we're going to see that the very identity of true Israel has always been about Jesus. And so in light of all of this, I want to ask you if you'll just stand and, and I want to pray. Will you stand with me and let's, let's pray for the circumstances happening in our world right now. God, first of all, we lift up your spirit-filled church that's currently in Israel, even in Gaza, the Western Bank, Lebanon. Lord, we ask that you would root them in their true identity in you. We pray that you would immerse them in your spirit and anoint them to speak boldly for Jesus and of Jesus Christ. God, strengthen and empower them to eradicate the spiritual strongholds over that region. That many would turn to you and receive your love and your grace and that everlasting peace. Lord, we ask for your protection over the innocent. God, we pray that you would make a way for them to move out of harm's way. And God, we ask, we lift up our military. God, we, we lift up the, the Ford Carrier Strike Force, the, the, the Eisenhower Group, the, the, the Carrier Strike Force, God, and, and all others who may be deployed. God, we ask for leaders and, and, and we lift them up. We ask that you would give them wisdom for our leaders, for the leaders of Israel. We pray that you would give them wisdom to make decisions uh, that impact so many lives, Lord, that they would be, God, ultimately rooted in your just wise leading. And so, Lord, we ask for your protection over these sailors and these soldiers, that you would set angels around them, God. We ask that you would empower them to bring order and stability even for your glory in this region that's been so racked by chaos and confusion. And so, God, we lift up the believers on those ships. Also, God, that they would point others to you, that they would be filled with your spirit to do so. And God, we lift up those who may be interacting and training and supporting those in the midst of trouble and difficulty. God, we ask for them, uh, for their wisdom and favor and protection. And God, we pray, grant them success and bring them home safely. 
And God, we ask for a spirit of fear and confusion to grip Hamas. God, we pray that you would bind them into ineffectiveness and failure. And we pray the same over any who would back them. That they would release all hostages and surrender their grip over the Palestinian people. And that they would relent and repent of that wickedness quickly. And so ultimately, Lord, we, we pray, as Psalm 122 does ask us to pray for peace in Israel. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so now, Lord, I ask that as I decrease, you would increase within me that you would speak prophetically through me. And Lord, if there's any, anyone in here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, God, I ask that they would receive you this morning as the lover of their souls and the king of their hearts, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, what a time to be alive on the earth. Right? I mean, especially as a spirit-filled Christian or a child of God, like none of this, I want to remind you, none of this is out of God's very good hands. And so let's dive into Exodus. You ready? You guys are like, wait, that wasn't the sermon? <laughs> nope. Here we go. All right. Um, for the rest of our time, we're going to briefly walk through chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Exodus, which is going to be essentially, it's going to introduce us both to the context of Exodus and to the man, Moses. And so as we walk through this very epic book, I want you to see that it's not just an ancient story that we can learn some helpful lessons from. I want you to see that both as a church and as individual Christians, this is your story and this is our story. Like this story not only gives the backdrop for modern Israel and many of the world's events that are kind of unfolding right now, it speaks to our own identity in Christ as we struggle with sin and journey into and even through our own wilderness toward the ultimate promised land. Okay? And so... I've broken this series up into three parts, so it's just an introduction for the rest of the next few months. Um, number one, the, the first part is going to be into the wilderness. That's what we're calling part one. It's going to introduce us to the context and the man Moses. It's going to take us out of Egypt through, to the, through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And so we're going to hone in on how God delivers us from the external bondage of this world. We're going to peel back the physical veil, and we're going to see that there is much more going on in this world than we can see with our own eyes, okay? And so I want you to put on gospel glasses to see how Egypt and Pharaoh even are types, types and shadows of all fallen rulers, authorities, spiritual principalities that exist in this evil age, and so I want you to receive the, these principles that are given to us for how to live in a world where satanic forces are often the puppet masters over worldly leaders and worldviews and paradigms. And so I want you to see how New Testament language even, like the beast or the Antichrist, are blatantly informed by this deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh and how the Exodus is ultimately a deliverance from the grip of Satan. And so we're going to let God's word and spirit, again, peel back the veil and shed light on the real battles taking place, both in history and in our own lives and throughout the world even today. So as, because, as Rich reminded us last week from Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our reality. This is what the scriptures scream when we read them in light of the world especially. And so that's part one, into the wilderness, okay? And then part two, we're calling up the mountain. And so the journey to Mount Sinai it's where we're going to hone in on how God delivers us not only from our external enemy and oppression, but also from ourselves, our own struggles with sin in the flesh, and even the desire to give up and go back to Egypt or bondage. It's a struggle, if you're honest, that many face in their walks with Christ. And then lastly, in December... We're going to do part three, which we're calling God with us. 
And we're going to see that God's ultimate promise to his people has always been himself. We're going to look at the point and the promise of the entire book of Exodus and really the Bible and the significance of even the tabernacle as we approach Christmas and the ultimate fulfillment of it all in Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And so this will be both a deep dive and a broad overview as we see how Exodus fits into the larger gospel story of redemptive history. And so, this morning, let's walk through chapter 1 and 2 of Exodus, and we're going to get our bearings on the setting and who this man Moses even is, and even more important, who Moses points us to. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Okay? So, three points for you as we go. Number one, first point, When eternal purpose takes a backseat to temporary comfort, that which used to comfort you will be the very thing that enslaves you. Point number two, trust in the Lord. Number three, remember God sees, God hears, and God knows. Somebody say, God knows. So here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. And even if you get nothing else from this series, this is what I want you to get, okay? You'll never know who you are until you get to know the great I am. You'll never know who you are until you get to know the great I am. All right, here we go. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. This is the context. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So the context here is important. Exodus is meant to be understood in light of the book of Genesis. This is kind of a recap that he's calling attention to. And so in some ways, Genesis was like kind of the Old Testament of the Old Testament, right? And Exodus is kind of like the New Testament of the Old Testament. It's a weird thing when you think about it, but that's what's happening. Genesis is filled with stories of how the world is filled with sinful humanity who worshipped and were bound to demonic idols, But God would set apart a remnant of faithful men and women for himself, and through these people, he would provide salvation to the entire world. They were a people of purpose and promise. And as soon as sin enters the world and the curse is pronounced on Adam and Eve, we're also given this promise of hope in Genesis 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And we get this, this messianic prophecy, which prophesies that the seed of woman will crush the head of Satan. And yet, in the process, this seed will be fatally bitten. And so it's a prophecy of what Jesus would do on the cross to set us all free from satanic captivity. And so this seed of the Messiah would pass through a remnant of faithful people through the generations. And then Genesis tracks this seed from Adam down through Noah and then Abraham. And that's when it really kicks into gear. And God establishes his covenant with Abraham and his son Isaac. And then his son, Jacob. And then the Lord even gives Jacob a new name, calling him Israel. And so the sons of Israel represented the covenant that God made with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. All the way back to the seed promise in Genesis 3, right out of the gate when man fell from God. This covers thousands of years. And so the Lord, or Yahweh, as he's revealed himself to them, promises to make a nation out of them and to gather them into this promised land in the region of Canaan. And through this nation and in that land, he would bring about a savior for both Israel and the entire world. And so now Genesis ends with the story of Joseph, one of Israel's sons, being sold into slavery in Egypt. But Joseph rises to power and authority in Egypt because of God's favor, and he even rises to become second in command next to Pharaoh himself. And then God providentially uses Joseph's position to save Egypt as well as the surrounding nations. They've oppressed Joseph, but the more they oppressed him and pushed him and even imprisoned him, it seemed that he was more successful and he rose to prominence. 
And it was even for the good of Egypt that he rose to prominence. There's a lot of significance in this. And so Joseph, again, he rises to this position and, and, and he providentially um, saves Egypt from this famine and even the surrounding nations, which included his own family, who then journeyed down from Canaan in that region into Egypt where they escape the famine and reconcile with their now very powerful brother. Now, Gosh, I want to do a series on Joseph because it's powerful. But that's just a recap to give us context here. Because this is how Genesis ends and Exodus begins. And so at the time the descendants of Jacob are known as Israel, at this point, when we start, or, or, or when Genesis ends, there are only about 70 people in Egypt. But verse 7 tells us in Exodus, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So hundreds of years have passed, and God's promised people have not returned to their promised land. They've forgotten God's promise and purpose. And when you forget God's purpose, it's a symptom that you have forgotten God. I want that to land. They've grown comfortable in a land that is not their own. They used to have favor in the eyes of Pharaoh who provided them with land and comfort. But, and this is that first point, when eternal purpose takes a back seat to temporary comfort, that which used to comfort you will be the very thing that enslaves you. That principle applies to all kinds of things. Verse 8. Now there arose in uh, sorry, there arose a new king over Egypt. So the king that Joseph had Pharaoh with and that uh, the Israelites had, had favor. Sorry, not Pharaoh, wow. The Pharaoh that Joseph had favor with and that was thankful for the Israelites, he died. He's gone. He's long gone. They don't remember him. And so there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. These were the store cities that they built. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So again, God's promise and favor was on the people. We see that here because of the messianic seed and promise that they carried, even though they themselves seem to have forgotten. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, I want you to put these gospel glasses on, these spiritual glasses here. So listen to the intentional language used here, especially if you're familiar with Genesis. Bitter with hard work in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. The way this is phrased in the Hebrew is very clear and even specific. We want you to remember the consequences of sin in Genesis 3. The consequences were that the ground itself was cursed because of their rebellion and disobedience. Cursed, it says, is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this phrase, mortar and brick also, so, so there's, there's such correlation here with hard work, bitter slavery in the field, and then also with mortar and brick. Like, I want you to hear this. I want you to see this. It's a callback, a clear callback to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Not long after Noah's family repopulated the earth, we see that they all tried to build, to work their way to God through mortar and brick. Israel 
is a people of promise and purpose. They're a people designed and chosen and called to operate as sons, and yet they are enslaved here by the very curse God has chosen them to break. But this is what happens, whether in ancient Egypt or modern-day America, this is the enslaved cycle we all fall into when you try to find your identity in anything or anyone apart from the Lord. Like checking out from God's promises and God's purpose, it might at first seem and even feel comforting to you. But guys, it always ends in bitter slavery. Always. Like nothing is enough. Everything becomes a burden. Career, family, accolades, achievement. If I can only get that job, or if I could just get that house, or if I could get that breakthrough, if I could get that raise, if my kids could get that degree, then I'll be whole, then I'll be free, then I'll have peace, then I'll be approved of, accepted of, whole. Guys, the truth is, outside of him and his promise and his purpose and his rest, it's all just the curse of trying to find identity and purpose apart from the only one who can give it to you. And the more you strive, the more you need to strive. And the farther you get from God. This is the context of God's people in Exodus here. Now listen, hard work is good and godly. Amen? But it's fruitless and pointless, thorns and thistles, vain striving apart from the Lord. It's easy to get caught up in the rat race of this fallen world, and you do have, in fact, an enemy who wants to oppress you and make you live like a slave rather than a son. And he often uses the promises of comfort and luxury to do it. But it's a lie. Listen, guys, there's nothing wrong with nice things <laughs> and prosperity. Praise God. I hope you all experience it and that the Lord does these things. Praise God for vacations. Praise God for comfort. But if that's what you're toiling for in life, you'll become beholden to the God of greed, and he will eventually crush you under the curse of your own self-centered striving. That's the reality. Our only true comfort is found in the Lord. He is our comforter, our redeemer. He is our restoration. In him alone can we find and do we find lasting and satisfying shalom, peace. And it's something you can't earn, something you can't toil for or build to attain. It's simply the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Like Christ alone purchased it for you. He wore the crown of thorns. And he produced the only lasting fruit through his toiling work on the cross. And he declared, it is finished. Receive this. Receive me. You can't get to God no matter how hard you work, how much brick and mortar you lay. He's got to come to you. We don't build up to him. He has come down to us in Christ he is, Jesus is the true stairway to heaven. He has come down to meet us even in our own sin and inability. This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die. And he paved the way. He conquered sin and death through the cross and through the resurrection, he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that begins the moment we place our faith and hope in Christ Jesus. It's not an eternal life that begins one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our faith in him. And he fills us with his spirit. And he changes us and he liberates us both externally and internally even from ourselves. And so now in him, we are purchased, we're redeemed, and we're filled with his very spirit. Like, we're no longer just dust and ashes. Like, if I'm ever doing your funeral and you're a Christian, I'm not going to do the ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, this isn't just ashes anymore. It was a spirit-filled, God-breathed believer who's face-to-face -face with the king of eternity. Right? It's different. It's different now. Like he's breathed this into us and he's spoken his sonship over you. This is what Israel was commissioned to point the world to. But God's people of purpose and promise had forgotten. Bound by the day-to-day -day drudgery, the rat race, the pursuits of comfort and the inevitable enslavement that comes 
They had forgotten their purpose and identity. But God. Say, but God. But God had not forgotten them. Some of you may need to hear this this morning because you've done the same thing. You've lost sight of your ultimate purpose and the promise he's called you to operate in, and it's enslaving you. It's time to remember who he is and who you are, and more importantly, whose you are in Christ. It's time to receive your identity in him and the commission that comes with it. Because guys, listen, if you're more concerned about your bank account than your neighbor's salvation, here's your identity reminder. Like if you're in a relationship with somebody you know God doesn't want you to be with, but you, can't, you, you, you think you can't do any better or you're scared you'll be alone forever, you need an identity reminder. Right? Like if you find yourself paralyzed to step out in faith or boldness for Jesus because you think you're going to screw it all up, you need an identity reminder. Like if you think you're too old or too young or too anything, or you're waiting for some perfect set of circumstances and you're stuck in analysis paralysis mode and the what if doldrums, right? Like the what, what if I screw it up? What if I get rejected? What if, what if, what if? Guys, what if God cares about that area of your life more than you do? Like, what if all you ever needed is already found firmly in Christ, so you're now free to go for it or to keep going in it and to trust him in the midst of it all? This is your identity reminder. You see, all of those things are just fear tactics of the enemy. He will steal your courage and your joy and your backbone because he wants to emasculate the people of God's promise and purpose. He did then, he does now. He always has. There's nothing new about the pacifying of God's people. You see, when the people of promise forget the promise, they expose themselves to their enemy who hasn't. I'm going to say that one again because I don't think you're going to get that one when you're driving home. You ready? I'm going to say that one again. When the people of promise forget the promise, they expose themselves to the enemy who has not. He knows what's on your life, whether you do or not. He does not want you to walk in it. Your enemy wants you on the sidelines of God's purpose. And the reality is the same demonic forces Israel faced then, we also face now. Exodus 1, look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Again, the enemy has been trying to abort and emasculate the people of God since the very beginning. So from a spiritual perspective, it's an attack on the messianic promise, right? The seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. We see something similar in Matthew 2 when Herod tries to kill Jesus by killing all the Hebrew boys, two and under. Same enemy. It's a direct reference to the spiritual battle that's alluded to here. And it's an antichrist spirit at work in both Pharaoh and Herod. And so from a practical perspective, though, this is an attack on even masculinity, which is an attack on courage and the strength of Israel. And yet, and I love this, and yet, as we're about to see, when it comes to the people of God, the Lord doesn't just call men to courageous faith. Throughout the Bible, women have a prominent place in this battle. Look at verse 17. But, so, so Pharaoh told him to kill him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Vigorous, what a good word. <laughs> And so God dealt well, it says, verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, isn't that interesting? What's that talking about? I want you to notice that Shipra and Pua are honored here. Like when someone is named in the Bible, it's often to honor them. Like Pharaoh is never named. That's intentional. It's a dishonoring. But Shipra and Pua not only receive the honor of being named, I think it's clear here that there is a grafting into the family of God. Here's what I mean. There's been some speculation on whether these women are actually Egyptian or Hebrew. 
They're called Hebrew midwives, but does that mean that they are Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews? Or are they Hebrews who are also midwives? It could be taken either way. And in the Hebrew, it's almost intentionally phrased this way, to be taken either way. And I think, I think that it's actually originally Egyptian women, but because of their fear of God over Pharaoh and their ultimate trust in the Lord, God blessed them with families, which I think is a reference to them being grafted into the people of God, much like Rahab would have been in Joshua or Ruth hundreds of years later or the Gentiles. So which leads me then, I think you get a prophetic picture of the church there. Maybe it's just me. Which leads me to point number two, trust in the Lord. Verse 22, when Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, or sorry, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so not just the midwives, commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, which was the river, but you shall let every daughter live. Again, this isn't just an ancient story. This is our story. I want you to see that Satan is depicted also in Revelation 12. You're welcome to read it. It is epic, again. In Revelation 12, he's, Satan is depicted as uh, pursuing a woman. He's like a dragon who's pursuing a woman. And this woman represents the people of God and the church pregnant with promise into the wilderness. This is a picture throughout the generations. And from his mouth, he spews a river like the Nile to sweep her away with the child. Or the promise. It's a picture of the way Satan has and continues to pursue God's people of promise. But there is one who took on those raging waters on our behalf, and his name is Jesus. because, And I, he is but prefigured here in a man named Moses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and so the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him uh, a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. So the way Moses' mother prepares this basket, I want you to see, is even a clear callback again to the way Noah prepared the ark in Genesis 6. Even the language of bitumen and pitch and the way that she does it, it would have, to, to put him in there, right? The way Noah, it's a callback to uh, the way Noah, a son of the promise and even an ancestor to Abraham and ultimately Jesus, would be protected from the waters of chaos and cleansing and wrath that would overwhelm the earth. And so Noah would trust in the Lord through faith as he built the ark and entered it with his family as the waters of wrath raged around them. P.S., there's only one door on the ark. There's only one way to salvation in Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the doorway of salvation. Don't you love this? I love this stuff. And so that's exactly what Moses' mom was doing when she submitted Moses to the river Nile the very waters of wrath that claimed the life of so many others in that time. Back to verse 5. So she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said, because remember, she's, so, she's like clandestine style in the reeds, and she's just like, here's my opportunity. Right? She pops out. Then his sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew, grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. It's not an illegitimate child. It's an adoption. It's real. And so she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So I want you to think about the situation. Moses' mother would have been as desperate as they come, and yet here she entrusts her only son unto the Lord, 
that's, that's as trusting as it gets. Like when I picture Moses' mother, whew, get the imagery. When I see Moses' mom and his sister are there and trusting him to the Lord, I can't help but think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and even Mary Magdalene before the cross. Faithful to the end, not understanding, yet faithful. And like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Moses' mom would also receive her son back into her arms, even to nurse, which is just another type and shadow that prefigures the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're not convinced yet that Moses is a type and shadow that points to Jesus, just look at the name. Look at the name he's given. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Moshe which means drawn out. But in Egyptian, it's pronounced Moses, which means son. For example, the famous Pharaoh, Tutmos, it meant son of Tut. And so Moses is both one of the Hebrews, yet also a prince of Egypt. Jesus is both fully human and the son of God. Moses was submitted to the waters of wrath and yet drawn out as a son of Pharaoh, just as Jesus was submitted to the cross and yet resurrected as the son of God. The list goes on and on, and we're going to see this throughout this series. And if you feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant here, just buckle up. We're going to circle back to a lot of these things as we go. But again, there's also a type and a shadow of the church here in these women. Their trust in the Lord to do only what God can do in a desperate moment of faith is evident. So there's a lot here that prefigures Jesus, but Moses is just a type and a shadow. Again, he's not a sinless man. Moses is not the Messiah. He's a boy who's grown up caught between two worlds and between two identities. There's a very real, very human struggle in this. Like, was he a slave or was he a prince? See, at this point, while the hand of God is all over Moses' life, he doesn't yet really know the Lord and his true identity. It's very clear, as we'll see. Moses still needs to be drawn out into sonship in the Lord. And that's exactly what we see happen. Because Moses can't lead Israel into a place he hasn't been. God must bring about deliverance and identity in Moses before he can bring it about in Israel. And so we're, we're wrapping it up here. We're going to roll through it. We're about to see a very deep identity crisis erupt in Moses. Look at verse 11. One day Moses had grown up, or when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Again, something deep within him erupts in response to the way these Egyptians were treating his people. Something, some purpose, some passion, something hidden explodes in this unbridled fit of rage in him. Which you remember, he's a trained prince of Egypt, which meant that he wasn't only a trained leader, he was a skilled warrior. And so what comes out is deep, but it's dangerous. And he's never navigated these waters before. Like he doesn't know what to do with it or who even to do it for. It all just comes out in the show of his own strength and power. This was not a commission from the Lord. Moses doesn't even know who the Lord is at this point. And so he may have had a sense of purpose in it, but it was a shallow counterfeit because God wasn't in it. It was only in his own strength, not the Lord's. This wasn't justice. It was only murder. And so now Moses may have even felt noble. After all, he was delivering his people from oppression, right? But it was a premature calling. He may have even felt impressed with himself. He likely thought the Hebrews would be impressed with him, and maybe even their God would be impressed with him. But if we learn anything from this incident in Exodus, it's that the fastest way to corrupt God's calling is to try and accomplish it apart from God. And so later in Moses' life, while leading Israel through the wilderness, Moses would declare to God in Exodus 33, verse 15, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall, I, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? And I and your people, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And so, in other words, like what we're seeing here is Moses' leadership and identity and very identity of God's covenant family has always been in their utter reliance upon the indwelling presence of the Lord, okay? Which is God with us. In other words, if God's not in it, 
I don't want it. And so Moses begins to learn this lesson here even in chapter 2. But at this point, again, he doesn't even know the Lord at all. So verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man uh, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? There's a principle here. I want you to see it. Oppression does not excuse murder. Whether it's perceived oppression or real, it never has and it never will. There's a growing sentiment in our society that excuses all violent behavior because of any perceived oppression. They say violence is the language of the oppressed. You ever heard that? You hear that a lot recently. I'm hearing that a lot. And yet, when God's people were legitimately oppressed, his calling wasn't to fight, it was to trust and obey. It was to confess, even to repent, and believe, to trust in his hand to deliver them, and then act accordingly. Moses doesn't lead Israel in a campaign to terrorize Egypt until Pharaoh lets Israel go. He don't become terrorists. Like that Christian Baal version actually depicts them as being terrorists. You ever seen that movie? It's stupid. Don't. It shows Moses and Israel like going on a terrorist campaign against Egypt. It's nuts. It's nonsense. It's not in the Bible. God calls him. That's, that's part of like our world projecting our carnal ways upon God's ways. God calls him to do something much more faithful and courageous. He calls him to testify and to trust even at the peril of his own life. So, no, freedom fighters and terrorists are not the same thing in the eyes of the Lord. Back to verse 14. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So he's been found out. He's seen these people and they're like, they're not thrilled that it happened. And so verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Just random detail there. He sat down by a well. Moses finally took a side here. Catch what's happening. He finally takes a side. He probably thought he was being pretty noble. He thought he was probably doing the right thing. He finally identifies with his people. He's associating even with these lowly slaves. He comes to his people, maybe even thought they would see him as the savior and accept him. He comes to his own. He associates with the lowly and he's rejected. Not only was he rejected, they turned him into the authorities, to the Egyptians, and now Pharaoh wants to kill him. This is where immaturity shouts, nothing I ever do is right or good enough, I just can't win. But the truth is, that's all just rooted in fear and identity confusion. So he takes off. He flees all the way across the desert into a land called Midian, which is modern-day Jordan. Who Moses is still needs to be drawn out from the depths, and that's exactly what God intends to do. The statement in verse 15 that Moses sat down by a well, it's not just an arbitrary detail. For anyone familiar with Genesis or this culture, it's a key phrase because not only is it an allusion to God drawing out from the depths who Moses is, it's also a picture of the depth of beauty and character that goes beyond the shallow and the superficial. On the surface, the water's muddy, polluted, unfiltered, but when you dig down to the source, you draw upon something deeper, something pure, something more living waters. If you're familiar with Genesis, you'll also remember that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all meet their wives at a well. And as we're about to see, the same is true of Moses here even in Midian. It all finds its culmination then, watch this, with the story of Jesus at the woman, with the woman at the well. In John 4, Jesus meets a sinful Samaritan woman. She's a foreigner. She's an outcast. She's a woman in a deep identity crisis. She's a woman shunned by others, bouncing around from relationship to relationship, having had multiple husbands, and in a situation now where she's like, I'm just unwanted and unloved. Hers was a shallow and likely frustrated life. The victimhood mentality is all over this woman. The sense of nothing I do is enough and I can't win is all over her. You can feel the oppression. The sense of being unseen, unheard, and unknown would have, would have identified and defined her life. And yet, and yet, Jesus, the very source of depth, purity, and living waters, the bridegroom himself meets her there, draws her out, and grafts her into eternal life and a new identity in him. 
This is all prefigured here. And so it is with Moses. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks, their father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. So again, prince of Egypt, warrior, hates bullies, didn't take kindly to this situation, throws down. Even for seven women he's never met. The depth of his character is actually on display here. Verse 18. And when they came home to their father, uh, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? In other words, they've been dealing with these bullies for a while now, and it has been normal. So they're home earlier, and he notices. Verse 19, they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that, we, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Not insignificant. Like, finally, finally, the truth comes out, not only about Moses, but also Israel. And it's proclaimed through the very name of Moses' firstborn son, whom he names Sojourner. Follow this. This is as much a confession as it is a name. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, or you might even say a land that is not my own. Remember Israel, Moses, God's people were called to something much deeper, much greater. And finally here Moses is drawn out and he's coming to grips with his reality, even his family's reality. He's being drawn out as a son and it's revealed through the son. He's a sojourner in a land that's not his own. Here's the question. How is God drawing you out? Like, if you come to grips with your own sojourn, with your own sonship, or are you trying to find identity in this world? That doesn't happen in the busyness, guys. And it's constantly going to get plagued by your enemy. It's constantly going to get assaulted. Sometimes it takes a shoulder replacement surgery to remind you, <laughs> right? To be still, to rest, to heal, to remember, to trust, to let him draw you out and remind you of his purpose and his promise and your sonship. To get perspective, not only of who you are, but whose you are. Moses' confession will soon lead to a very real encounter with the living God. And yet, with this confession of identity and sonship, the camera then suddenly, as soon as that happens, it like pans back across the desert, all the way back into Egypt, as if to say, meanwhile, back in Egypt... And this is our final passage here. Exodus 2 verse 23 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died... And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So as Moses is being drawn out, God's people are crying out. And although it seems like they've forgotten who and whose they are, God has not. God sees them, he hears them, and he knows, just like he knew the, man, the woman at the well. He gets it, which is the final point here, right? He sees, he hears, he knows. Even as they cry out, God is in the process of bringing about their deliverance through a Savior. And so the book is the book designed to remind God's people of his faithfulness. Verse 25 is an intentionally emotive, passionate response from God because he cares, he longs for his people, and he knows he's not forgotten, and his desire is to draw them out into sonship. See, Moses' journey isn't about Moses. It's not about just this man. It's about something much greater, and the same can be said of you and I. God desires to continually draw you out of the superficial counterfeit identities and vain purposes and empty promises of this world and into something deeper, something pure, something eternal. The sonship that's available to us all is in Jesus Christ. The question is, do you trust him? Will you let him continually draw you out and into himself? Will you come to grips with your reality, with your need, with your shortcomings? 
Would you let him speak life over you? Would you let him remind you that it's not just about you or this life, that you're a sojourner in a land that's not your own? Moses couldn't lead Israel into spaces and places he'd never been with the Lord. Not just physically, but spiritually. God desires to not only do something significant in you, but also through you. But it all begins and ends with finding our identity in Christ alone. Let him take you deeper. Let him draw you out in your identity. This world is jacked up, guys. But the greatest thing that we can do for a world enslaved and on fire is to let the Lord draw us out and draw us near. He's not distant. He's not confused. He sees, he hears, and he knows. He has an identity and a calling for each one of us and as a church even. It's about sitting down by the well with Jesus and drinking deeply. That's where it's unleashed. Let's pray.